Hello, this is Goldsmith Odyssey host Yavar Marathi, and I want to welcome you back to another installment of Odyssey Interviews. Today, our guest is conductor and composer Justin Freer, who is associated with Goldsmith in the last years of his life and is currently working on a live concert performance of Rudy, performing at the end of the month in Los Angeles. Justin, welcome to the program. Hi, Yavar. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to talk about Jerry. This will be fun. Yes, thanks for uh, taking the time to do that. For our listeners, could you give us a brief overview of your relationship with music in general and how you started down the path that ended up becoming your career? Well, it started uh, over 30 years ago already. I just turned 39 not too long ago, and I guess at the age of seven, seven, eight years old, I fell in love with music in general, and, and it was due to two different albums simultaneously gifted to me. One was a classical album and one was a film music album. And fell in love with the art of film music at that moment and just fell in love with the idea of color and timbre and rhythm and harmony, all these possibilities. It was Mahler and John Williams. And what were the pieces? Uh, well, Mahler's Fifth Symphony it was the mm -hmm. focal piece on the uh, the record was uh, Sir George Solti. And the Williams album was, uh, by request, the best of John Williams and the Boston Pops Orchestra from the 1980s. You know, the 15-track album that's bookend, you know, with Olympic fanfare and Star Wars main title. So from there, I knew that would be what my life had to be. So I started on trumpet and percussion and started composing for, you know, wind ensemble at a very young age. I was lucky enough to have a, a wind band director that was very supportive of reading the music literally the day after I was done copying it. And so I had a, a very young opportunity, a very unique opportunity, I think, for folks at that age to hear back what I was writing, and it was very helpful. So it, you know, continued on, and, and here we are decades later and, and still trying to get it right. Now, I'm curious, with an introduction to music like that, did you feel a distinction at the time between concert hall music and film music, or was it all just kind of orchestral music to you and equally exciting and valid? I felt and heard the distinction immediately, and, and, and there still is one, and there always will be, and there, and there should be, I think. The application of how the music is used is what the distinction is. Certainly, the idea of form is very different in the concert hall than it is in film. You know, you, you are given form in film, and arguably the most difficult, and I know Jerry felt this way, the most difficult part of music is form. And you're not given form when you're writing, you know, your own composition as a commission for an orchestra, for a chamber group, for a big band. That's on you to create, whereas with the film, the roadmap, so to speak, is very much given to you. And how you solve that, of course, is up to the composer and the director simultaneously as they, as they collaborate. But there's certainly a distinction now. It's different for me now than when I was a child, of course. You know, we, we learn more and you evolve and your ears change and your sensibilities change. But at that age, I felt it very, very much so. Historically, you know, there's always been kind of a disconnect or a split between those who support absolute music and those who support programmatic music. I feel like it's kind of manifested in the 20th century as a snobbery against film music, but it's funny because nobody would think opera was a lesser art form today, but you go back far enough and uh, there were people who looked down their nose at opera or ballet or, you know, music written for plays or any sort of program music, even if it was composed freely and not for a specific visual element. It's heartening to me that it seems like film music is getting a little more respect, and I think part of that is people starting to perform it live in concert to picture in its original context. So it's an actual 
art form the way it's being presented now. And, and you've been a big part of that. I think you're right with everything you're saying. There is, there's a lot of different types of distinctions between concert music or absolute music, if you will. It's a, probably a subcategory of concert music and film music. But I've always felt from day one that great music is great music. And whether or not it's written for the chamber stage or it was Wagnerian in size or it was music written by some composers out of the avant-garde in the 1960s. And there really were a lot of great pieces of music that were written during the avant-garde. And I think perhaps that's where some of what you're saying is sourced from. I think that we're still kind of tearing ourselves away from, you know, the ramifications of the 1960s and the early 1970s in concert music, particularly in North America. And for that reason, it's taken us a while to kind of disconnect from it because those that were trained during that era have a certain sensibility, a certain purpose for why they spent their time training as a musician, as a conductor, as a performing musician, as a conductor, as a composer. But I think that what we, what we lost, one of the primary things I think we lost during that phase in music history was the point that we are still, while we might be incredibly gifted musicians, we're struggling musicians or something in the middle, we're ultimately all entertainers. We are nothing on stage without our patrons in the audience, you know, absorbing what we're doing. So we can spend our lifetime studying, but if we have no one listening and no one paying to come listen, then it's almost a fruitless endeavor. And I think that more and halls around the world are realizing that. And as it is with most industry, if not all industry, money is oftentimes the driving factor in evolution. In this case, you know, you mentioned these live concerts, you know, these wonderfully beautiful scores in some cases synchronized to picture, given all of their glory as they were intended. These concerts are bridging a gap between the age of some patrons around the world and the younger age of others that are coming into CDs. In some cases, their first symphonic experiences are with these types of programs. So people are finding that it's making more money for their halls, bringing in fresh new faces. And those are the types of things that need to happen for music to evolve, for any art form to evolve. So it's, I think it's a good thing. I agree. It, it seems like in the past, there was an idea that if music was too accessible, it was seen as commercial or something like that. But I would say most composers have needed to eat, and they were working on commissions and such. And you have to make music that audiences are going to enjoy. And you know, composers who used to be made fun of earlier in the 20th century, like Samuel Barber, are now kind of vindicated in their music as being performed in the concert hall so much more. And the interesting thing for me is that Jerry Goldsmith's music kind of fits in between somewhere because he is so versatile that his output spans the gamut from the most accessible, melodic, straightforward music like, say, Rudy, which you're conducting soon, or all the way on the other end of the scale to Alien or Planet of the Apes. Or and Coma. That's even further. Coma and Mephisto Waltz, and one of my favorites is Seconds, but he had such a strong avant-garde side. And when I spoke to David Newman recently, he described Goldsmith as a modernist who was kind of moving towards more accessible romanticism over the course of his career, perhaps. And he said John Williams was kind of the opposite. But I think it's just interesting that Jerry's music spans such a wide gamut. 
Yeah, his versatility is unmatched in my view, particularly in film. And I think Henry Mancini had it right when you know he said all those years ago when he was presenting Jerry with that award in, in Los Angeles. I forget which circle it was for, what dinner it was for. Uh, the Society of Composers and Lyricists, yeah, I think. Yeah, we, we are, most of us probably know the story. Most of your listeners probably know the story, but it's worth reinforcing that when Henry Mancini that is, is on, on, on the dais saying how much Jerry scares the hell out of us all, uh-huh. you know, that's saying something. And I, I agree with Dave. You know, Dave's a friend and a colleague. And I think Jerry was, was a modernist his entire career. And while he may have moved more towards romanticism in certain ways towards the latter part of his career, and probably no small part due to the way that movies were moving and the way that he felt perhaps that he had to be a bit more accessible to deal with the realities of more and more directors and producers honestly not knowing what they were doing and not knowing the power of music in the film and not letting Jerry be what he was great at, not allowing that role as the composer to be a composer instead of being you know, a monkey for hire that has been tempt with all kinds of tracks and being told to copy those tracks. And just there's a lot of variables that go into why music has evolved over the decades. And that's certainly one of them, the temp track. And we, you know, we all talk about it here in Los Angeles and around the world where we mm-hmm. record and where we compose. And I think John Williams is admirable in that way and that he, he would always say, and still to this day, I think does, where he uses the temp tracks as inspiration and finds ways still to, to achieve that originality not everyone is at the level of a John Williams or a Jerry Goldsmith. So the temp track in itself has become a, a great challenge for composers. I think it's become a crutch. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Um, it doesn't help that studios are becoming more and more corporate with each passing year, with each yeah. passing merger. Less willing to take risks as more and more money's invested in something. You know, they don't want to try something that sounds like nothing that's been heard before or, you know, is really pushing the boundaries. It's true. The, in the days of you know Cecil B. DeMille and David O. Selznick are not completely gone, but they're almost gone. And I think that we have a responsibility as artists to do what we can to make sure that we're fostering those types of environments that foster great creative risk. And that's one of the reasons why I, I love so many movies that came out of the 1990s when, you know, what, what we call the mini major studio, those, you know, 20 to 30 million dollar budget pictures would produce. They would produce a great sense of originality because they didn't have a lot of money to play with. But there wasn't such an extreme as there is now where it's a very low budget film or it's a tentpole blockbuster that's a $300 million property. There were a lot of those mini majors that produced great things like The Hunt for Red October and Patriot Games. And Jerry found himself in that as well with movies like The Edge. I mean, what an incredible score he wrote for that film and and chain reaction is in there you know perhaps not a classic film like the edges but a really great score ultimately by jerry i agree that one's pretty underrated it is it's really and i I love the ice chase and i and in the way that he used you know as he did in so many movies his synthetic elements in that film to really you know give that kind of pulsation of what that movie was about this scientific drive behind keanu reeves character and ultimately this drive behind humanity to try and find a clean energy source and Jerry found a really cool way of addressing that through musical means. I like the way he used the electric guitar as just, you know, another weird sound in his repertoire.
Do you remember the first time you heard the name Jerry Goldsmith or noticed his music? I do. It wasn't long after I was introduced to orchestral music from these records that, that I mentioned, and it was a simultaneous, again, another simultaneous introduction, in this case, Jerry stuff, where I was introduced to Star Trek The Motion Picture, which, gosh, I mean, you know, amazing, right? As he admitted, one of the most challenging things, he, at least as far as the main title, the you know, coming up with. But so Star Trek The Motion Picture and Planet of the Apes. I mean, a really interesting kind of convergence of sound because one is rather romantic and the other is incredibly modern and daring and still continues to be, I think, one of the most uh, risk-taking and daring film scores ever written. I mean, the grooves in that film from Planet mm -hmm. of the Apes, the musical grooves are, I think, unmatched in music history, in film music history. And I think that if, if young students out there are looking to study a handful of film scores that are great scores because they're great music. I think Planet of the Apes is in the top five. I mean, from an analytical standpoint, it's incredible. inspired to become a composer yourself at a very young age, as I understand. How did that come about? And, you know, what was your experience like that brought about your first work for Wind Ensemble that you wrote, I think, when you were 11? It was just a confluence of events, I guess. I mean, I, I loved so much the studying of the, the solo instrument, you know, how that played into the overall ensemble, how it was a, very much a team playing endeavor, but also at the same time, a very individualistic experience. While both are happening together. There's not many things in the arts that are like that. So I was always fascinated with being able to take one instrument and then adding three or four more. And what's the sound that you get by putting a mute in the trumpet while simultaneously having the clarinet play the same note an octave higher? And a bit of a scientific experiment, but also one that's to this day, I think for all composers, also an emotional experiment. And these colors, these timbres, these rhythms and harmonies and formal things that we grapple with and are challenged with as composers ultimately are things that drive us to feel emotion. And clearly in film, that's what one of the primary things that music is supposed to do. But I think I'd say the same thing for even some of the greatest concert music in our history. You know, whether or not, again, good to go back to Wagner or it's Richard Strauss or it's Johann Strauss or it's even the early music of Bach, you know, where he was driven by so many amazing commissions at the church. He might maybe the greatest organizer of notes we've had in our history, but you compare that, you fast forward 500, 400, 300 years, wherever you go from his particular spot in music history into the future even, you'll find that there's always a comparison to him because I think his mathematical structure in music was unparalleled and continues to be to this day. So, But ultimately, it drives emotion, and I think the greatest music has always and always will tell some version of a story. And whether or not that story is something that you agree on as listeners to Mahler's first symphony, the Titan Symphony, um, it might be a different story that you tell yourself that you're hearing through that music that might be different than what Mahler was trying to tell. But ultimately, a story results. And 
no disrespect to the avant-garde, but I never felt like I was being told a story through the music of George Crumb or the music of, I mean, I could go on and on with some of the other composers. Um, Stockhausen. Stockhausen. Or... There's a couple of things I like of Stockhausen personally, but you're right. Yeah, Stockhausen is another one. I'd say John Cage is another example. I, I, I think we learned a great deal from those composers and we built upon their successes. But I think one of the things that perhaps was missing, at least it was for me as an individual, was that sense of storytelling and and Jerry was one of the best at that. And I think one of the primary reasons, if not the primary reason he was the best at that, was because he realized that in order to tell a story, you had to find the emotional core of a character first before anything else mattered. You know, Jerry was very much an emotional man, and, and I think you, you hear that in all of his music scores. And he was able to take some of these avant-garde techniques and flavors of the 20th century and incorporate them in his storytelling his musical storytelling. You're right. And his melodies. There was something, I, I'd have to, I'd talk about this a lot with one of my old mentors, Paul Chihara, who actually was really good friends with Jerry for a long time. Paul would famously say in every conversation we ever had about Jerry, yeah, there's just something about Jerry's harmonies that I can't put my finger on. And, you know, even when you look at what he's doing and you analyze it, you know what he's doing. There's something about his harmonies that you can't put your finger on. And he's right. Paul's right. And I think it's a really kind of simple way of addressing what Jerry did so well. You know, we'll, we'll never be able to fully explain how he did it. I, for one at least, can always tell it's a Jerry Goldsmith score, no matter whether it's on one end of the spectrum or another. But would you say that harmony is one of those reasons why? And, and what other ingredients do you think make up his uniqueness? Well, harmony is probably chief among them. And the only reason I say that with some confidence is because... Jerry would often say that if you're not working on your harmony, you're not working. But he did feel that form was one of the most challenging aspects of music, but he would always try and drill into, I think, young musicians to think about harmony. So I think that's certainly one of the things that separated him from his peers and from other composers that came before him and those that came after him. Beyond harmony, though, I mean, you know, it's impossible to ignore his, you know, his multimeter sensibilities. That's my favorite thing <laughs> about his music. Nobody does mixed meters so smoothly and naturally as he does, including anyone I can think of in the concert world, in terms of making it accessible and flow for listeners. You're right. And accessible is an interesting word there because Jerry was so inspired and he, he admired Stravinsky. He really admired him. And you can hear that in, in Jerry's music.
it's definitely there, but he took it to a new level for me. He did, especially in his meters. You know, his um, Stravinsky's meters make sense when you can f- <laughs> you can figure them out, and there's ways to figure them out. You might not figure all of them all of them in your lifetime, but you'll you'll figure them out enough of them anyway to justify the time spent learning his music. But there's an element to Stravinsky's music that was okay. I'm going to push the boundary for pushing the boundary's sake. And not always did the meters feel natural. And same with Jerry. You know, he would admit that, oh, yeah, you know, I had to add that in there because uh, I just needed an extra eighth note to catch the frame. But he would do that, and it wouldn't feel all that off because his basic structure was already based on that. So when he made those music editing adjustments, you know, with Kenny Hall as music editor, it didn't feel like he was going over a major road bump. It just felt like, oh, okay, you know, it made sense. That was a pretty good uh, Jerry Goldsmith impression there. (laughs) When and how did you first meet Jerry Goldsmith? Was it through your teacher, Paul Chihara, in the UCLA film music program? I met Jerry before I went to UCLA. He he admittedly, I don't blame him for it because he was so busy, but I, I met him on a couple of scoring dates when I was a young teenager that he was working on in Los Angeles. And I just had a, you know, short moment to shake his hand and we had some mutual family colleagues that were responsible for kind of uh, arranging an opportunity for me to just see and listen to what he was doing. But when I came to UCLA, it was, you know, a much more formal thing. And he was one of the primary reasons, if not the biggest reason I decided to stay for my graduate work. So I spent six years at UCLA in the composition programs. And he really was the driving reason for me to come back uh, after having spent what time I did in the undergraduate work. And, I, and I'm so very thankful that I had the opportunity with him because, uh, you know, nearly two years after we got to know one another, he, of course, passed away of cancer. And mm-hmm. so it was... it was. Um, you were just right there at the very end of his life. I was. And it's time that I will always cherish and so happy to say that I still communicate with Carol, his widow, and, and so happy that they're coming to the show next week in Los Angeles for Rudy. So... You know, I, all these years later, still trying to find ways to celebrate his life and remember him and, and think back on the things that he did so very well, better than all of us, and, you know, trying to continually be better as a result. What was the Jerry Goldsmith workshop like? I didn't do, I had more more kind of one-on-one time I did with him than, than a workshop. A workshop was interesting with him because, you know, he'd have so many different backgrounds that were there composition backgrounds that may have been European heavy versus North American heavy, which is a very different set of sensibilities, folks that might know more about jazz than they do about, uh, you know, concert music and vice versa. So Jerry was always hesitant when these very few workshops that he ran that had to do with film music, he was always, always hesitant to talk about film music, which I so respected and appreciated about him because I agreed 100% that film music is not about film, it's about music. Mm -hmm. And then film comes second. If you don't have control of your composition devices, you'll never have control of your music and film, ever. I think that he was one of those few composers that had a gift that never really wanted to admit he had a gift. For him, it was always about technique. You just sat down and you did it. And if you couldn't do it, you didn't have technique. Very simple. And I, I think I agree with a lot of that. Um, but I, with the, part, the part I don't agree with is that element of pure magic that Jerry had that no one else did. And that's not something that you can learn. You can learn how to, how to structure harmony, you can learn about form, you can learn about rhythm, but how those elements come together in your own personal way is what made Jerry, Jerry. 
So he would spend time, you know, talking about maybe a scene that he did and said, look, we're going to scrap what I did. I want to see what you did. And we'd do a scene with him. And he'd be very honest. He said, look, this doesn't work. And here's why. Um, or he'd say, wow, that's really interesting. I didn't, I didn't think of that. You know, I should, man, that's a good idea. And, uh, and then everything in the middle. But he was very honest with how he responded to what was being done. And again, one of the things I appreciated and respected so much about the man, because he felt that if you didn't know what was working or didn't working, it wasn't worth your time to spend with him. Not the other way around, but not worth your time to spend with him. I mean, how amazing is that? That's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> how did you grow closer to him personally? Well, how did that come about that you, you know, became one of his closer friends during the last couple of years of his life? Well, I'm not sure how close a friend he felt I was, you know, just to be fair. You know, we we got to know each other more and more, the more private time we kind of spent through music, you know, speaking more about composition than anything else. We really kind of dropped the idea of film when we had some time, you know, hit a studio or some time on our own at UCLA. And I think what, if anything, drew us closer, it was our admiration for similar things. And that may have been certain pieces of music or certain composers or, you know, certain solutions to problems that composers took on. In other cases, you know, admiration for certain historical figures and pieces of history that we both simultaneously admired. But I think that that Jerry was was always cynical is not the right word. He was realistic in a way that a lot of composers, at least that I knew and still know to this day, were not. And I think his realism mixed with his, we can almost call it fantasy. His abilities were so above the level of so many others that it was almost fantastical. So he lived in this simultaneous world of being able to achieve things that virtually no one else could through his craft. But he was a very realistic man, and he was realistic from everything from how he felt about his own technique to how he felt about the quality of certain directors and maybe the lack of quality in others. But he never meant a mean thing about anyone ever. It was just a very honest assessment of how he felt he lived best in those worlds, whether or not it was with a director or was with a producer or certain musicians in town. I think that's what made him Jerry. He had this ability that no one had, but he dealt with it in such a humble, realistic way. It was just incredible to watch. The way David Newman put it was no bullshit. Yeah, he was, <laughs> that sounds he like was, Dave. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, 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 it's not that he was mean, but he was honest to the degree that he would tell you what he thought and not sugarcoat it too much. Or at all sometimes, which is respectable. You've said in another interview that you learned a great deal from Jerry outside of just music. And is that one of the other things you learned from him or what other sorts of things? Well, I think that he helped me to understand that music was about more than just music. I mean, there was the absolute part of learning music and respecting music and finding a way to better yourself every day. I mean, every day of your life is another opportunity to do something that you haven't done before and do it better. But his, the way that he just kind of approached life in general, which was he was a very, very soft man. He really cared about relationships and cared about the types of things that you're inspired by as a human being. And he felt that a lot of that made you a better musician. You know, I wouldn't say that he focused on that because he was so heavily focused on becoming a better musician is what makes you a better musician. But certainly, you know, the third party, for lack of a better phrase, the third party elements in life that inspire you to write, those things were inspirational to me as well in a lot of ways, just kind of seeing how he dealt with it and 
So it was hard to see him go. I mean, it was hard for all of us to see him go, and even even those who never had an opportunity to meet him and just knew his music because they they loved Jerry for how he made them feel about a movie or about a memory with their family or their friends. I mean, I can tell you um, just from my own personal family history, so to speak. You know, the main title from Rudy, from day one in both my young daughters' lives, became one of the first lullabies that, that I ever sang to them. One of my favorite melodies he ever wrote, and so you know, even our family has a kind of a connection like that to Jerry's music, an almost tradition. In this case, with Rudy's main title, and I think you know, great music can do that to you. But it did it to Jerry too, because you can hear him humming on the score at at one point. I think that's the only time I can think of him pulling a Glenn Gould like that. <laughs> pulling a Glenn Gould, I like that. That's a good phrase. I remember that next time. I'm gonna have to steal that one from you. That's fun. Can you share any anecdotes about what he was like as a person? Can you remember any stories or, or um, funny moments with him that stood out? Sure. I think the first one I remember as a, as a young budding musician at, at UCLA when I first met him. It's kind of, kind of a funny story. 
I well, not that I won't. I actually can't remember the the full name of who this person kind of of the person the story centers around beyond Jerry. But we were in one of the music studios at UCLA, and he, he was he was looking at some of the music we had written collectively. You know, for, for one of the scenes, he wanted us to take a crack at. It was the first time that, at least as a, a collective group, any of us had been exposed to Jerry's opinions on what we had first brought in you know, for the very first time, right? So, you know, we're all young and in awe of this man and some of us more than others. And um, he looked around and he saw this score and he saw another and he got to the third score in the room and kind of looked up at this, this young, sweet girl. And he says, you know, I can tell that you know how to write music because your penmanship is nice, but you're not really writing music. You're writing penmanship. And it's <laughs> really... You just you had to be there to kind of take in the context of that because the the first couple of scores he looked at you know he had a lot of really kind of musical um, opinions to make and he made some comments about what was really happening with the harmony and what could have been happening against the film and he gets to this next one and he makes this funny comment about penmanship and then that conversation kind of went off and took a turn and then we started talking about uh, Herb Spencer and the way that Herb and his penmanship as an orchestrator anyway it was just kind of a funny thing. What what about uh, Spencer's penmanship? Well, how, God, how do we even start talking about Herb? It was he started talking about a, an alto flute line that he doubled for Jerry one day when that wasn't in the score, and and he mentioned something along the lines of having to call Herb and say, you know, Herb, I I don't know if this was you know you and your penmanship just not being very clear, but is this supposed to be for alto flute? And you know, so, something along those lines. So it was uh, okay. So it it wasn't that he had equally good penmanship to this young lady <laughs> it, it was hard to read or something hers was hard to read um uh oh, in, in some oh, cases okay. so that that was the irony of the thing you know the best of what he saw in her was his bad penmanship <laughs> so he but that was him just being brutal you know to use dave newman's he was just no bullshit at that moment but he would turn around and if he saw something that he thought was working he would be very very supportive and he would be very nurturing and he would let you know it. Did you ever work with Jerry on one of his film projects? Did you assist in any way? No, I didn't. I never had an opportunity to do that. And I'm actually kind of, in hindsight, almost thankful that that, that I wasn't in that position because it, it would have, I think, resulted in looking at Jerry in a different way. I admired him for the person he was that you know, we all looked up to and continue to look up to, even though he's not here with us anymore. He would have gone from being a mentor to a boss, and that wouldn't have been the same. Yeah, you're right. That's a good way of putting it. And I don't know how that would have played out. I'm sure I would have enjoyed it. But, you know, again, 2020 hindsight, but looking back on it, no, no regrets that I wasn't able to work with them in that capacity. Can you tell me how your company, CineConcerts, came about and what plans you have for it? Well, it's been just over six years since it was launched and we launched with Gladiator, you know, the Hans Zimmer work to Ridley Scott's masterful film. And, you know, we've kind of since gone from that to The Godfather and Breakfast at Tiffany's, the Harry Potter franchise. And it's a lot of variety. A lot of variety, a lot of other things coming down the pipeline and so happy that finally we're here doing something at Jerry's. I've been looking for the right title and the right timing for a long time now and that we're able to do Rudy is really a very special kind of personal project as well as a professional one. Yeah, you got to pick something that's known, but also not one of his more sparse scores like Chinatown or Patton, because then you're playing for like a quarter of the runtime or less. 
It's true, and and that's part of what goes into to selecting which of these really makes sense for the stage. And and I'm very much on both sides. You know, I see the the business potential and the the realist that you need to be in order to you know build a business. But on the same time, I, I'm very much a kid in the candy store as often as I can be. And you know, so we're we're working to develop Lawrence of Arabia, which is a, a one where I know is it's not going to play a lot because it's you know 18 hours long or 18 hours and four minutes long. But uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so that that's very much a passion project. And Rudy kind of falls into the middle, I think. But we've had such a wonderful responsive support from folks like Sean Astin and David Anspaugh, the director, and of course, Jerry's family and Angelo Pizzo, the writer, and Rudy himself, Rudy Rudiger. And so everyone has really kind of come out of the woodworks for this one, not only because here we are 25 years later, but Jerry is the common link for all of them, not just the film, but Jerry. And I love what, what Sean Astin says about Jerry's music. And I think this speaks a lot to the brilliance of Sean as, as an artist and as an actor, he realizes not only how important music is for picture, but in this case, for the score to Rudy, he still recognizes these many decades later, just how much Jerry's music played a role in making that movie work. And not to take away from David Anspa or Angelo Pizzo or any of the, the relationships that those three had that came out of Hoosiers, but there was an element to that score that Jerry brought that just was the icing on the cake. And I think that as you progress through the film, it gives you these little kernels of emotional reward. He teases you a little bit with, with what Rudy's going through in musical ways. And then finally, he just gives it to you in the final game. And I think that's one of several reasons, but certainly an important one for why you're in tears at the end. I mean, this is a movie that should have been sponsored by Kleenex from day one, you know? What was the process like selecting what Goldsmith score to do first for your cine concerts? There's a lot of scores at Jerry's that I would put on stage immediately. If, if you know, all things were equal and we lived in a vacuum and, and I knew that there wasn't the other variables that exist, you know, which is the financial risk on these projects, 
you know, whether or not a certain market responds well to the movie. You know, like Star Trek, the motion picture responds much better in North America. Well, the people in North America respond to it much better than those in Europe, for example, or South America. When are you putting that one on? <laughs> yeah, well, I want to. Believe me, I want to. And, and Paramount would like to, too. But there's there's a part of this where, you know, a, it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to restore these. And some more so than others, you know. Uh, sometimes the scores are missing or in the case of this, you know, best case scenario, older movies, the scores are there. But the changes were never written down on the archived material in the studio. So you're still listening to do a lot of transcription work based on the changes that were made either by the director or the composer, whoever, on, you know, on the recording date. So there's a lot of variables that go into it. I mean, how we settled on Rudy was a confluence of a lot of things over the last few years, but there's been a lot of movies that I've wanted to do. Uh, many of them are at Fox, and uh, Fox Studios hasn't come into this genre as quickly as some of the other studios have, I think is a nice way of saying it. So for that reason, it kind of puts you in the other category. And then, okay, well, if you want to do The Poltergeist, is there enough pull for that? Or if you want to do The Omen, can enough people do the live choir at every opportunity? You know, so Star Trek, the motion picture, Giacchino, Star Trek's already out there. Is, is there Star Trek fatigue? You know, so there's a lot of things that go into this selection process. And the 25th anniversary of Rudy was certainly something that kind of helped to put Rudy over the edge. And of course, Carol was so excited about it. And this, the David and Spawn, Angelo, when they found out about it, you know, they got really, really excited as well. And so there became this almost kind of you know, responsibility, I felt like we needed to do this one. And so I'm, I'm happy that we're doing it because this is a film that means so much to so many people and same with the, the movie Music. And I know from talking to Carol that she's received so many letters over the years from people explaining to her just how much Jerry's music has meant to them over the course of their, their lives for whatever reasons. And I think this kind of just helped to bring a lot of that home. Are there any interesting behind-the-scenes stuff you could reveal about the process of readying Rudy for live performance like this? Yeah, there's some fun things. The scores were actually pretty well intact on this one, I have to say. So there wasn't a lot of question in the air on this. And the changes that were made by Jerry, although not all of them were traced to the scores, were obvious changes that you could hear. And the ones that made sense, you know, it's so funny. <laughs> With a twenty twenty hindsight, you know, on your side, it's interesting to kind of go back and listen to some of the things that made it to the final dub that Jerry changed and then going back and looking at the original scores and asking yourself, was that change there because it was there because of the movie or is because Jerry felt that was a musical change? Was he asked to make that change or did he feel like making that change? Right. I mean, that's something I, I ask myself when I do these projects in general, but in case of Jerry and Rudy, I do know that some of the changes were made because of just certain emotional content that he and director David Anspaugh were, were speaking about. But some of the things were just, you know, Jerry being on the stage and hearing it and reacting to it and said, nope, that's not working. And that's one of the things I love so much about Jerry was that he had no problem whatsoever saying that about his own music, that, that, okay, this isn't working and here's how I fix it. And he would every time. So where I was going with this was hearing the things that he did change for Rudy from the original score to what was actually recorded, they were all changes that just made sense. So he was always trying to better his own music and could very easily figure out when it wasn't working for him. And I think that's something that all of us as young musicians, young composers, I mean, geez, 30 years into the business composers should learn from. Because I see so many colleagues, some of them closer than others, constantly putting up a 
defense mechanism for when something's not right without looking at themselves first or what maybe it was because that's what they wrote. And that's okay. That's, that's how you better your craft. You realize when it's not working. That's what made Jerry better and better and better every year he got better. It's one of the things that made him great. So there weren't any times where you preferred the original on the page? Not in the case of Rudy, no, absolutely not. And the changes weren't significant. You know, there were orchestrational adjustments. There weren't like major formal changes, you know, or, you know, chop this section here and replace it with a whole new rewrite. That's not how this one went down. Nothing like Star Trek the motion picture. (laughs) No, nothing like Star Trek the motion picture. Or... I mean, how many times did he write, you know, that beautiful theme for a raise theme for a medicine man until he finally settled on the very first thing he wrote like three weeks <laughs> before, you know, he finally realized that was the one, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing like that. Not, not, not that I could see anyway. What new insights did you get into the score to Rudy tackling it as a conductor as opposed to just listening to it as a fan before? I think that you can see the Irish tendencies in the music more when you really kind of look at the rhythmic patterns and how he structures them. And, and interestingly enough, I thought maybe I was kind of going out on a limb, you know, it's like, well, really? I mean, you think, you think that there's an Irish tendency here or am I just kind of reading into it because it's Notre Dame? And, and as it turned out, I wasn't reading into it. And Carol Goldsmith was actually the one who confirmed it for me. It's something I, I, hadn't, I did not know at all either from Jerry personally or even the things I've read about this score or heard from the director. Jerry very much was inspired by the idea of an Irish jig. This was a dance, much of the music from Rudy. And when you think about it that way, then it changes your perception of the music, and it makes even more sense in some ways from a musical perspective. But it's an interesting thing to learn from Carol that, you know, Jerry kind of was inspired by this musical Irish jig form and went with it. And a lot of the imagery in the film, you know, when they're practicing or when they're playing football, it is a dance on the screen, you know, they're moving their legs and his music makes it a dance. Yeah, you're right. I remember um, years ago, Joel Goldsmith came in for kind of a, a short visit at UCLA and we were talking about Rudy a little bit. And I thought it was a really interesting thing that Joel said about the music as Rudy comes back to the field, you know, he comes back to the team, you know, he quit, but then didn't he, you know, he's coming back. He had this beautiful long shot where you see Sean Astin's character walk into the frame and all you see is his legs to start. And then you finally, you know, he gets closer and closer to the team and you have that driving timpani, you know, boom, 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 boom. You know, he brings in the, the melody and the horns. Joel was, Joel was so funny. He admired his father so much, and I think Planet of the Apes was one of his favorite scores because of the percussion grooves, the rhythmic grooves. And 
He says, oh, you know, but that scene from Rudy is so funny. You know, my dad just, he knew how to bridge the line between not being cheesy. That scene in Rudy, it's almost cheesy with the timpani, but then he brings the horns in and then it's perfect. And I think it was a really kind of interesting thing to hear Joel say that because I think that's true about a lot of Jerry's music where there was a right on the line between popcorn and uber serious. And that's one of the things that made him great. Did you get to know Joel as well, or was just just one of the rare times you met him? No, I'm afraid I didn't get to know Joel that well. We crossed paths a number of times, but um, I'm ashamed to say I, I didn't get to know him very well before he passed away. It was sad he, he passed away so soon after his father. I know. It, it, was, it was hard, I imagine, for, for the family, but he was, in his own way, a great talent. have a little more time i would love to ask you about your experience conducting goldsmith's work for star trek for the concert series you did the 50th yeah sure we can keep talking let's keep Excellent. talking this is fun all right uh so was that your first time conducting goldsmith's music no it was not actually my first time conducting any of jerry's music was not the original scores as it turned out it was i was still in college and there were some folks that were looking for, chief among them was UCLA, you know, which makes sense after he just passed away to, to do a tribute for Jerry. And so I suggested a wind ensemble version that would be a medley of his music, some of his greatest music. So I actually took it upon myself to arrange a 16 or 17 minute suite of his music for wind band that had never been done before, at least in that instrumentation. The other wind band arrangements after are the Wind and the Lion suite. A few things for Star Trek. I think the Wind of the Lion is probably one of the best, actually, arrangements that are out there of his music in the wind band world. But there wasn't much. And so anyway, I made kind of a medley of things. You know, it started off with Star Trek, and or it started off with Patton, rather, ended with Star Trek, and it had music from Basic Instinct and um, a number of other things. So that was the first time I had ever really conducted any long-form music at Jerry's. And we did that in a number of wind ensembles around North America when that first kind of hit. But the first, like, major orchestral music at Jerry's was his 50th anniversary, and what a window into his music through all the stuff that he wrote for Star Trek, you know, amongst the music of, of course, Dennis McCarthy, Alexander Courage, and a number of other composers. But So that was the, the first kind of major orchestral experience, and what a way to do it with a London Philharmonic. <laughs> they blow your hair off. Was it interesting to compare his music with that which was written by other composers for the franchise? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, we all agreed. We actually, we, over a glass or two of bourbon, we were talking about this after the L.A. performance of the show at the Pantages, that regardless of how successful patrons or Trek fans or the producers 
of the, the Trek franchises that were attached to the various iterations that these composers over the years had composed, everyone agreed hands down that we all looked up to and continue to look up to Jerry as the guy, not only just in general, but of course in Trek. And it's really interesting to hear folks like Dennis McCarthy say that, and that McCarthy and Jay Chataway and Cliff Eidelman and folks that are, really have a great admiration for Jerry. But absolutely, there's a huge difference. I mean, Jerry's music and everybody's music, else on the side, he was different. And everyone continued to look to Jerry for inspiration throughout the entire franchise, I think. What's your favorite obscure or more obscure Star Trek theme of Jerry's? You know, outside of the Klingon theme and the main theme that everyone knows, do you have a a favorite lesser performed or, or paid attention to? Yeah, well, I don't know if it's, I wouldn't call it obscure, but obviously the main title to First Contact is just gorgeous. But I love the Baku theme uh, that he wrote for harp and flute and, you know, oboe and oh my gosh. I mean, he was just, he was in a phase for a while where he was writing gorgeous chamber music. Rudy actually kind of falls into that phase a little bit with this beautiful harp and flute solo to open the film. So, I mean, th- those two I really, really like. And it was an unexpected way to open a Star Trek film, I think. Absolutely. And I thought it was knockout gorgeous. Absolutely. My very first soundtrack album that I owned was Star Trek First Contact. So that's always been one of my favorite themes. But I kind of think over time, I've grown to appreciate Star Trek Insurrection more Mm -hmm. because he he actually wrote three new lyrical, beautiful themes for that. And I think that the score as a whole has more of a flow 
and a journey to it than uh, first contact does. Yeah, I think you're right in that way. Something about though, when you hear you hear six horns playing in unison in the register that Jerry wrote for first contact, it's magical. It's really, really, truly magical. And he knew how to how to utilize that section as a unisono section and as well as a divisi section. So. But First Contact, that's a heck of a first album to have. I love it. If there wasn't an issue with Fox as a studio or any other restrictions, what work of Jerry's would you most be excited to conduct in the future? I would love to do Planet of the Apes, which I know they did a single performance in London, a one-off, which I don't really know all that, honestly, how it went. But I would love to do that one. I mean, The Omen is so special. Another Fox picture. I could go on and on about the Fox pictures. But, you know, as funny as this might sound, I mean, you know, um, I would love really love to do Total Recall. Oh, that doesn't sound funny. I think that would have some commercial appeal too. Oh, it's just incredible. And, and one of the things that Jerry did that very few people can say, and John Williams can say this to some degree, and a number of others in the golden age because music was evolving so quickly and they were forced to write so many different types of things so quickly during the 40s and the 50s. But Jerry reinvented so many genres you know, and I think Total Recall score, he reinvented the action genre and he re almost reinvented himself. I mean, he had written other great action scores before that. 
but he did the same with you know the thriller genre, Basic Instinct. He rewrote the books. He rewrote the books in Planet of the Apes. He rewrote the war books for Patton. In the Omen. I mean, he completely rewrote how to score movies as a horror film, and people were copying him for years. So, but Total Recall really sticks out because I think that for me is up in the class of a score like Legend, which, as we all know, wasn't used in full by Ridley or at all by Ridley. But the amount of complex things that are going on in Legend and Total Recall are just staggering. One thing that's so interesting to me is that he wouldn't ever let himself get comfortable in a genre. Like, I, not that I hold. Elmer Bernstein responsible for this. But after <laughs> Magnificent Seven, yeah. most of his Western scores owed a large debt to that sound and, and you know, the Aaron Copeland-esque feel. Yes, you know, he actually wrote a score before then to a Western called Drango, which doesn't have that sound so much. It's not bouncy. And that's my favorite Western score of his. But then he kind of became a victim of his own success. Jerry Goldsmith, on the other hand, would not only reinvent all of these genres, but continue to reinvent them he scored 10 Western films or, or more, and each one is very distinct and different from the rest. And he never took the same path twice. And he always wanted to do something new and experiment in some new way with a new approach. Yeah, I, I admire that so much about him as an artist. And, you know, I think we all know how often he would he would answer that question, you know, because he would get it so very often from folks around the world. You know, what's your favorite score? And him saying that it's the one I haven't written is so perfectly correct with what we know his musical output to be. Do you have time to speak a little bit about your own work as a composer? Yeah, there's not much to talk about, but <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> well, what do you want it to seems like about? you've done a number of interesting works. I read about a couple you did at UCLA. There's one, the Sketches of War, and then a chamber orchestra work you did called The Tree of Humanity. I'm curious about those. Wow, you really did your homework, my friend. I've forgotten those titles. Jeez, this is a blast from the past. Those are some so, some intriguing titles anyway. <laughs> well, I can speak on Sketches of War, and that was a string quartet. It was my first, my first endeavor in writing a string quartet. And, you know, what does any young composer do when they need to learn how to write string quartets? They go listen to Bartok particularly, and, and Beethoven late quartets. Mm -hmm. So I was basically inundated with Bartok and late Beethoven and was in this phase of John Coltrane and Stravinsky all at the same time. So some whatever kind of came out of me came out of me because of this confluence of composers that I was listening to and studying at the time. But it was, it was a three-movement work and deals with the perils and the successes, if you even want to say that, the tragedies of war and what war has meant to humanity over the, over the centuries. It certainly means different things to different people and different cultures in different time periods, but that's kind of what I tried to deal with in that work.
I admittedly, you know, one of the things that is conducting so much is in the last few years, as much as I love it, it, it has certainly served as a big distraction for writing. And I'm, I'm hoping this year I get back to a lot more writing because that's really my primary love and one of the only things I feel like I know how to do. So I hope I get back to more of it. But gosh, Tree of Humanity. Oh, my gosh. that I forgot that I even titled it that. That was my graduate, one of my graduate works that I gave for my very final graduate composition recital. It was scored for large brass, small winds, and percussion. You know, kind of played a lot with polytonality and, again, in the Stravinsky, kind of coming out of the Stravinsky phase at that time. But I always had a fascination for brass and winds and percussion, having grown up with them. And I didn't get into a lot of string writing, really, until my late collegiate years. Um, I've written a lot more for strings since, but kind of dabbled in all kinds of different things, I guess, over the years. But Wow, I'm I'm impressed that you remembered a title that I completely forgot. Are there any works of yours that you think were particularly influenced by or inspired by Goldsmith? Sure, yeah, several of them. There's one of them that's out there that gets a pretty significant amount of play among the wind band world called Rio's Convergence. That's about the Rio Grande, the Rio Grande. Ah. And it's just a fun, you know, five and a half, six minute kind of swashbuckler to you know, open or close a concert for the wind band world. And when I wrote that, I'll, I'll admit, admit this freely, I'm happy to. There's some moments in there where I was definitely inspired by how Jerry approached The Last Castle, the Robert Redford picture. And there's about a, you know, 30 or 40 seconds in there where if you're listening for it, I think a Goldsmith fan would be able to very quickly identify it. original instrument was trumpet. Have you ever performed your own compositions on trumpet, perhaps? I have refused over the years to perform my own music for the most part. There's an exception to that where I was on piano. I gave up trumpet in college and took on piano almost exclusively. You know, you, you got to choose your battles. Since I was spending the night under so many pianos uh, as a young musician at UCLA, so I could get the practice room first thing in the morning, it just kind of naturally became my instrument over the years. So with the exception of playing piano a few times on some of my works, I generally have always tried to avoid it like the plague. I've always liked to be either on the podium or just working with a chamber group that didn't need a conductor as a third party. But inevitably, a lot of my music has either featured the trumpet section or relied heavily on them or as a solo here and there. But as far as chamber music, uh, there was a work, I guess, gosh, dating back almost 18 or so years. I wrote called Bixby Alley. It was a chamber piece for trumpet, viola, and piano, and wrote it with one of my best friends in college at the time. He still plays trumpet in Los Angeles, Adam Batia. 
and wrote it with my then girlfriend, now wife, in mind on viola and, and a friend of mine on piano. So that, that's a fun work. At Bix Bialy is kind of a play on words. And Bix, the letter B Alley, kind of jazz inspired chamber piece in reference to the Bix Bialy, where so much jazz uh, evolved in New York. you have a favorite Jerry Goldsmith work for solo trumpet? Because he wrote quite a lot. Wow, that's a tough one. That's a really tough one. You know, you say that and my ears and my heart go almost instantly to that gorgeous trumpet solo from the River Wild. Interesting pick, yeah. Was just so beautiful. I mean, he's written so many incredible trumpet solos. It's just gorgeous. I mean, you can't ignore Chinatown and you can't ignore LA Confidential, you know, on, on the flip side of the coin, right? Decades later. First Blood, I mean, oh, Lonely or the Brave, so many. So good. And some of the piccolo trumpet solos that came out of his early Western music, really difficult stuff. I mean, like, you know, it gave Ennio Morricone a run for his money. be remiss if I didn't ask you about your commission to compose music for the 2011 and 2012 Major League Soccer Championship Cups in Los Angeles. I grew up playing soccer. It's probably the only sport I regularly care about. So can you talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, it, I mean, it was just a fun kind of wild thing that came out of nowhere. There was someone who knew a bit of what I was doing with the Los Angeles Brass back at that time, an ensemble that I don't work with all that much anymore, although I like to bring it back into reality. It was such a great group. And they had heard what I was writing outside of that, and they said, well, we're looking for a group to perform at the MLS championship here you know, in Los Angeles. Would you guys be interested? And I kind of said, well, sure, of course we'd be interested. We'd love to do it. But let me counter that proposal with, why don't we rewrite some of the things that you guys do? Let's rewrite some of the MLS anthem, and let's perform it with a new arrangement, a new style. And so I wrote a couple of original compositions for it and then rearranged the MLS anthem to uh, fit kind of more of like a, almost like a bugle chord percussion setup and then a giant brass ensemble. So it was really fun. And the first time we did it, it was so unfortunate. We were so, so excited to get on the field, but it was pouring rain at the first MLS championship in LA. And we ended up having to perform like at the top of the stadium where you could be seen from the field if you really looked, but we were undercover because we had all the recording equipment. I didn't want to risk, you know, getting it wet and, you know, that, 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 one excuse after another. And so we, we, we were performing at the top of the stadium when we were supposed to be at the 50 yard line or, you know, the football 50 yard line. Uh, anyway, just kind of a funny, funny turn, turn of events. That's neat. So just to close off, do you remember your last time meeting Jerry Goldsmith and spending time with him and where you kind of left things with him? I do. It's, it'll be impossible to forget as long as I don't come down with a neurological uh, something and I get older, I'll never forget it. It was actually at his studio at his home and we were talking about synthesizers. You know, he was just showing me some of his, his old gear and gosh, he had a lot of it, you know, from the original Moog all the way through the the most modern thing that you could get your hands on. He was always experimenting with it. And it was just a very easy day. I wasn't there for long. I was on my way to a meeting and dropped by to say hello. And we were just talking about synthesizers. That was my last, my last time with Jerry. And before we all knew it, he was, he was too sick to spend time with, you know, folks outside of the immediate family, which is completely understandable. And before we knew it, we lost him. But that's nice that your final memory of him is one that was just a fun one, you know, looking into something that he cared about. And he did. You're right. I mean, he just he was such a kid with all of his synthesizer gear and the knowledge that he had rivaled anyone I ever knew in, in town or still know. I mean, there's a lot of guys who are great at what they do with the synthesizer gear, and you know, or the Ewees or, you know, any of the stuff that comes along with that part of a business. But Jerry had such a deep knowledge and a deep love for it. And he was always so excited to go out and buy the next thing because he could do something new with it.
All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with me, Justin. This has been a really great conversation. And thank you for sharing your memories of Jerry and insight into his music. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, thanks, Javar. It's very nice to speak with you. And good luck with what you're doing. What you're doing is great. And you know, keep up that memory of Jerry's and, and his legacy because uh, it's, it's deserved for sure. Thank <laughs> you.